0: Welcome to the Freudcast. This is Matt Barbette here and you find me on High Street Kensington just a stone's throw from the Daily Mail's offices. Why am I here? It's because of my guest, Freud's managing partner Ed Amory, who worked at the Daily Mail before joining Freud and prior to that he worked in Margaret Thatcher's Government as well, Ed, is that fair to say? That is, well, nearly in her government. I was the most junior person in
1: the entire political structure when I first started. I was a special advisor to the Department of
0: Agriculture. We will get on to that shortly, because we're going to talk about those sort of three phases of your working life, if you like. And we're going to start in the middle. We're going to start with the Daily Mail, seeing as we are here in Kensington. And what did you do for them? What was the job when you were there? I... I'd been working for The Spectator,
1: which was the the most charming job I've ever had. Um, I'd get to work at about half past ten in the morning. I'd meet the then editor, Frank Johnson, in the coffee shop. He'd be reading Le Monde. And and we'd chat about life for about half an hour before heading in rather gently into the offices in Doughty Street, where um, he would... um, He'd probably, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd read a couple of books, and then people would start to turn up. He'd open a bottle of champagne um, and um, start gossiping, so essentially. civilised. Yes, it was incredibly civilised. And then after about 18 months of, of, of The Spectator, I can't really believe I ever left, to be honest, but after about 18 months of The Spectator, he sent me to, to see... Um, Veronica Wadley, who was then the Features Editor of The Mail, to talk about how we could um, cooperate more closely. And I had lunch with Veronica in a, in a restaurant just about a couple of hundred yards over that way. And, um, and by the time I got back to my office, um, she had biked round an offer. Wow. <laughs> du- doubling my salary. And then the Daily Mail was a, is a good tempter in every single possible respect and I, I'm afraid I, I, I fell for it. So I spent, then spent 12 years on the mails, and I, 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 wrote about, um, I wrote about politics and I was sort of a fixer
0: for the editor. Which was Paul Dacre. Was it the force um, in the British media landscape then that it has now become?
1: Yes, by the time I joined the Mail, Paul was already a legend, for better or for worse, um, and it was a it was I it was it was like joining this incredibly formidable machine, because every every day you had to produce you know, not only an enormously number of a large number of words, but but an incredibly directed number of words, a, a, a number of words that was was focused on achieving a particular outcome Um, and that was probably more than any editor in Fleet Street at the time then or or, or, or possibly since Paul had a sort of vision of what he wanted the world to look like and he saw his newspaper as an as an instrument to achieve that end
0: almost like his personal fiefdom or with the backing of the proprietor well the proprietor Jonathan Rothermere was a
1: a believer, a slightly old-fashioned kind of proprietor, in the sense that he believed that um, editors should edit. And once, you'd appoint, once the proprietor's job was to appoint an editor, but not to tell him what, what to think. Um, and indeed, Jonathan disagreed, I think, with quite a number of Paul's views over the
0: years, but, um, but he let him get on with it. In terms of the mail and the impact it has, on British national life. Was it the case that Paul Dacre was trying to give Middle England what it wanted, or was he responding or to Middle England and, and telling them what he thought they should have?
1: Someone once said that the, the, um, to me that the, the, the economist vision for, for journalism was to simplify and then exaggerate. Um, and I think that was especially true of the Mail. why do people read newspapers? They read them because the world is an increasingly complex place. They're trying to make sense of it. So newspapers are an editing process. They're taking the enormously large number of things that are happening all around the world every day and making, um, turning them into an intelligible story. Um, And clearly that intelligible narrative um, crafts the way people see the world, but at the same time, Paul's insight, I think, was that you couldn't, you couldn't run counter to the, the fundamental instincts of the, of the readers. So for the time I was there, most of it, um, Tony Blair was the prime minister. He was extremely successful and popular prime minister. Yes, and the son of a Tory himself. The son of a Tory himself. And and the Mail hated him. You know, with endless articles about the sort of wicked, wickedness of Mr Blair, um, and it didn't make the slightest bit of difference, quite frankly. <laughs> um, you know, the, um, maybe a little bit at the margin, and it certainly got, you know, Alistair Campbell and, and, um, and, and Peter Mandelson very cross, but, but it didn't actually stop people voting for him, even readers of the Mail. So did Paul change the world? Probably only at the margins. He ran with the instincts of the, the readers, and if you look, you know, the, the argument, some people's argument would go... You know, Paul Dacre was responsible for, at least in part, for Brexit, because he, his newspaper was vigorously in favour of Brexit, um, and and, and that sort of pushed pushed the country over the edge. I've never believed that to be the case. I mean, clearly Paul believed in Brexit, he always wanted to leave the European Union, um, and he used his newspaper as an instrument to get that point across, but people in Britain and certainly a lot of the readers of the Mail felt very strongly that that, was the, that should be the case. Yes, I don't think Paul changed their minds fundamentally or
0: only other the margin. Working there, did people assume that you had the exact same views as the paper or did people realise, and was the newsroom quite different to how the paper um, spoke? I mean, you, I imagine you've got all sorts of different voices in the newsroom, but they're all aligned on what the central message of the newspaper is. Well, clearly, eh, clearly not everyone agreed with Paul about everything. I certainly
1: didn't, um, and 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 there were lots of people with very different political instincts, even from different, different values, I guess, working for the newspaper. But they knew, they knew they weren't going to be given a platform for fundamentally opposing views. So it wasn't like, you know, the times where a, a, a broad range the perspective of of, of a newspaper like that is to have a broad range of views. Um, A debate, if you like, the male male columnists were expected to sing from the same hymn sheet. Yes. Um, You know, you could push the edges, push the the argument at the edges. I did once get an article in the mail um, um, in favour of the legalisation of cannabis. Um, And so, (laughs) you know. But it was—it almost had a sort of black border around it um, marking it out from the rest of the paper in case, in case the paper was contaminated by this dangerously contrarian perspective.
0: Was it intoxicating to work somewhere that had such influence or, or influence at the edges as you've described it? Yeah, I mean, I think one needs to be realistic about the element
1: of influence you had. But part of the reason that I left politics and went into 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 journalism was because politics felt no like, under, jo- under john major felt like it didn't know what it wanted to do with life what it felt about the world um, it was it was a you know, and there were elements of the the then labor government that i disagreed with perhaps looking back i was wrong so about some of them anyway but um the mail was probably the best place to 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 um uh, to take on some of those arguments yeah um, but the but the attraction of journalism and you would know this I mean you know, the attraction of journalism is, is a different kind of intoxication it's that vicarious experience of, of, of great events so you know you're so you, I remember the, watching the standing in the newsroom in the mail and watching the planes fly into the Twin Towers and yes there's the same sense of horror and amazement and uh, there's also the sense of okay, so how are we going to cover it you know what assets do we have on the ground what what are our comment pieces going to look like how will the world change as a result of this event and how are we going to explain that change to our readers by the next morning and uh, and And if I miss anything about journalism, and I've been out of it for nearly eight eight years, um, it's that sense of
0: involvement in in, in, in the things that matter in the world. I I agree. I was early in my career as a journalist when 9-11 happened. I was working at the BBC at Radio 1 at the time, which is an interesting place to work and tell the news because people are listening to Radio 1 for the music. But (laughs) if you got the news right, Newsbeat was the programme, then you accessed an audience at the BBC didn't access in any other way, and um, and you're right, it's that feeling of knowing before anyone else, of writing the first draft of history as it's called, uh, and trying to make sense of it and being paid to make sense of it for the benefit of a wider audience. So it has to be said, man, one of the reasons I left
1: is uh, you went off on holiday and you came back. You know, I used to try not to read the paper on holiday and then I'd, I'd get it delivered. So when I came back, you work your way through two weeks of, of The Daily Mail and you'd realise that quite a lot of it was fish and chip wrapping. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Which put, your, put your, your the significance of your role properly in perspective.
0: <laughs> but what's interesting about that is that The Mail made a huge play... In going online and became I think the biggest online news brand in the world as a result of that and that has two sort of pillars to it one that it doesn't become chipwrapping anymore because everything is there forever and searchable and you can look back at it and it's much more accessible globally so the mail became a global brand off the back of doing that and also by having its sidebar of shame which mm-hmm. is impossible to ignore.
1: Yes, I, I mean, obviously, the Mail Online is a different institution. It flourished under Paul Dacre and Jonathan, in the same, they, but they, they it, was, it was, it was, it was, it was envisaged from the beginning um, as an as a, as, a, as a something that would not cannibalise the original Mail leadership, which was very sensible because it wasn't um, wasn't trying to take people who were already paying for a print newspaper and um, and giving them something for free. Um, but it also expanded the mail out into the world. But it did that by essentially editing via an algorithm. So the mail newspaper, more than any newspaper in in Britain at the time anyway, was edited by a single guiding vision, whereas the the online version is edited by what people click on. (laughs)
0: Cookbait, yeah. Basically. Um, yeah. You know,
1: and and, and 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 the more people click on a particular story, the more space and the more prominence it's given on the website. Yes. So,
0: so it is an exact sort of holds up a sort of terrible mirror to the world in a way. But it, maybe it didn't cannibalise the audience because it offered two different things. But did that compromise the brand? Do you think in doing that kind of thing? I think. I'm not sure that it compromised the brand.
1: I think it split the brand, and I think which is which is a, a, an issue that the, 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 the Mail is is still dealing with, in the sense that it essentially has two brands, both called the Mail. One is a, a global online brand, um, celebrity-led, not very values-heavy. You know, a mirror, if you like, and the other is a, you know, sort of a, a a print edition that has a very strong vision of the world and tries to impose that on its readers. And you know, they both coexist to some extent uneasily under the same roof. But to be honest, it's
0: a nice problem to, for them to have. Yeah, yeah. We are walking through Hyde Park right now. Lovely sunny February day here in London. So we've left. Kensington behind we're heading vaguely in the distance of Whitehall and Westminster so a good junction to go even further back and talk about that other tyrannical leader you worked for prior to Paul Dacre and Margaret Thatcher and I should say this is something you've touched upon in the leadership episode of the Freudcast previously but it'd be nice to expand upon it so how did you end up working for you know one of the most prominent prime ministers one of the most prominent women in history by accident okay um like like nearly
1: everything i've done so so i i'd been at university i left i wasn't sure what i wanted to do and i had a i had a great friend who was um who'd been at university with me um, and she, um, she said for God's sake you've got to stop sitting around and get a job like the rest of us and um, why don't you come and work at Conservative Central Office, um, I'm working for this really nice guy called Dave, Dave Cameron and he'll give you a job. Um, and." And so I went to see David, and David slightly... I'm not sure how keen he really was to give me a job, but Rachel had told him that he ought to. So he gave me the most junior job that was going in the Conservative Research Fund, which was the, uh, the
0: agriculture desk officer. And this, But this is, this is not the David Cameron who went on to be Prime Minister. No, we, no, no it was the
1: same David Cameron okay. who went on to be Prime Minister. Um, so at that time, possibly not. I, 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 my crystal ball on the subject was a little bit unclear. Yeah. Why, what was he like? He was very bright, he was extremely ambitious, he was a good guy, but at that stage I would have, I would have pegged him for the cabinet, right. not the top job, but you know, life, life, life changed, the wheel
0: turned and he indeed, did indeed become Prime Minister. And the rest is history. Yeah, one way or another. <laughs> so, so you got in there, did you completely subscribe to the philosophy or was it more about doing a job? I remember when I'd been there.
1: So, so I arrived just before, about six months before Margaret Thatcher left. And I mean, first of all, I was, I, looking back on it, I think I was virtually unemployable. And yeah. I can't remember what, you, I remember what your first job was. But, but you know, you leave university, it was quite a struggle to get up in the morning, go to work, and be be useful all day. <laughs> Um, so once I'd got past that, then I sort of realised that I was working for working for this extraordinary institution whose values I, you know, I'm not sure I'd completely signed up to. Yeah. And I remember Margaret Thatcher resigning when well, I'd been there for about six months and she came along to say goodbye in central office and uh, we were all in this room and... Everyone was crying, and she was crying, and she was standing at the front, talking about how we, by this stage, she'd entirely stopped using the ordinary personal pronoun. <laughs> yes, um, the royal how we. how we and Ronnie and Mikhail had changed the world, and everyone was sobbing. And I was thinking about, sorry, at the bad thing here. Otherwise I thought myself went to was sort of cult, <laughs> um, but then it went very rapidly from being this sort of extraordinary cult with a with a, with a, with a vision of how to change Britain to, to 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 John Major, who was like the opposite, <laughs> you know sort of the cones hotline and um, another uh, and other outstanding political concepts um, so it was a sort of sort of pathetic moment really and, and and, and I, I, I'm, I was, Annie, and still am, fascinated by politics. And, I, and, and, and my family had been political. I have an uncle who was an MP, my great uncle was chancellor. So I, I, I did want... I was genuinely interested in the politics of it. But, uh, um, and, and I th- flirted for a time with, with, with whether I should go into politics myself. And lots of the friends who I made there, including Dave, <laughs> uh, did. Um, but I decided I didn't want to have a public life and, um,
0: so I'm still fascinated by politics, although slightly exasperated by where it's got to yes, yes. today. At the time of recording, Bernie Sanders has just won in the Hampshire primary, so, you know, it's never too late if, uh, if, you know, he can do it at whatever he is, 78, I think, after having a heart attack. Um, Given that this is the Freudcast and we, this is from Freud's, we should talk about some of the communications lessons that you perhaps learned to the, from the tail end of Margaret Thatcher's time and working uh, through John Major's tenure as Prime Minister. Yes. I mean,
1: from a political perspective, I think politics has often, often led the way, the, 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 the visceral desire to, to hold power... And the requirement to take to take um, the electorate with you um, has encourages politicians and those who advise them to innovate in in um, in communications terms in a way that then often spills over into into uh, into other 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 areas. So the sort of campaigning concepts, you know, the idea of having a message discipline. Of having um, a uh, having a very clearly defined message that you test with with your audiences, and then you stick to it. Um, you know that then spilled over into 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 um, you know, commercial marketing, commercial communications. Um, but but looking back on it, I have to say that I think that most of the elections in my my lifetime have been lost, not one. Um, in in the sense that, you know, John Major won because he, um, um, because he, 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 Neil Kinnock was an idiot. (laughs) Um, You know, this time, honestly, Boris won partly because of Brexit, but also because Jeremy Corbyn was literally unelectable. You know, the, the Conservative Party... Under 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 William Hague and others, you know they weren't electable. Perhaps in '97, I think I think that was a positive victory for for Tony Blair the first time out. I, I still remember I'd spent the. Um, the election campaign in, in Stafford, as David Cameron's or, um, chief, at, chief of staff was trying, trying, and in, in that case failing, to get elected. And I remember the moment that him and the candidate from the monster-raving Looney party were consoling each other in the car park after the count. Um, but I drove back to London and listened to the story the the, the radio. Um, of of um, you know, an answer talking about you know Tony Blair t- talking up at Downing Street, and it and it it did feel like a new start, a new moment. So I think that was a positive victory. But most of the most of the elections have have, have not been won by by brilliant campaigning or you know the dark arts. Actually, they've been they've been lost by by politicians who didn't know what their message was or who were just deeply uncharismatic.
0: And, and there's, a, there's a sort of broad lesson there, isn't there, about benefiting from other people's misfortune, you know, in electoral terms. But you talk about David Cameron, perhaps felt he was, you know, a bit down and out in 97, but clearly it was the beginning of his next chapter, which ultimately culminated in becoming prime minister himself. Yeah, I mean, most, most really successful politicians
1: and and and, and 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 I think the same is often true in business. Our people with the resilience, resilience to take setbacks and pick themselves up and have another go. Um, you know, your politi- in political life, it's never over, and the same is true in, 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 um, in business. And I think that's something the Americans are much better at than the Brits. The yes. Brits if, you, if your business goes bust and Britain, you know, there's a terrible cloud hangs over you, whereas in America, it's sort of, OK, well done, well, you had a go, and then you probably learned something we can
0: all use usefully ne- next time. Matthew Freud, founder of Freud, said he sees a lot of entrepreneurs who have a lack of self-awareness and... Conversely, that then gives them the confidence to just carry on and not worry too much about what other people think of them. Do you think that, I mean, that must go hand in hand with being resilient? Yes,
1: I, mean, I think a, 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 an unusual degree of, of, of self-confidence, or at least the belief that anything is possible in life, um, is, is usually associated with most successful people, both in politics and in, and, and in the rest of the world.
0: So we've got the household cavalry in the distance going through there early morning motions. You can just hear them shouting and hear the the horses trotting. Uh, And we are heading sort of out of the other end of Hyde Park now into the West End. Freud's HQ uh, awaits us. Uh, And Freud's awaited you having decided to leave journalism. Why, having gone into it with a view to perhaps changing the world in a way you couldn't in uh, the Conservative Party under John Major, did you then decide to leave the Daily Mail behind and go into the world of communications and public relations at Freud? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I didn't want to be the editor of the
1: Daily Mail. Um, Was that on the cards? N- no. <laughs> um, partly because I didn't want it. Um, partly because I, I would have been wholly unsuited to do it. Um, particularly the Daily Mail, as envisaged by Paul Dacre uh, at the time. You know, increasingly... uh, Some people start start on the left in life and and, and move out towards the right over time, and I've probably gone the other way. And I felt I'm very fond of Paul Dacre as an individual. I thought he was an immensely talented editor, but I increasingly disagreed with his vision of the world, and being part of a paper that that projected that vision um, wasn't wasn't where I wanted to be but I didn't necessarily want to go into another newspaper. I mean, journalism was a really interesting thing to do, and I loved it for for more than a decade, but it was time to move on. So I went to see various people who ran um, PR companies. I had four children, so I had to pay the bill somewhere. So I had to find something, some people who would pay pay me for what I knew. And um, I met a number of them, and, and I met Matthew. And I thought Matthew was the one who would ensure that my life Um, Post journalism would be would never be boring (laughs) Uh, He's a very restless individual I've seldom met anyone who comes up with more ideas and um, And I thought that would be quite he would be an exciting person
0: to work for and so it so it has proved What have been the most exciting bits? What have you enjoyed the most? What have been the biggest lessons? if I can ask three questions in one, forgetting my journalist skills for a second. You know, I've probably forgotten the last one by the time we get to the first one.
1: I suppose what I've, what I've, what I've enjoyed the most is, is working. First of all, Freud has an, a really unusually number, high number of, of bright people, and they're very different, so they all understand different things about the world, know different things, things that I don't necessarily know. I've enjoyed working with them, I've enjoyed learning from them. Which way are we going? Let's go straight on. Straight on. And I've enjoyed working with them on really very, a very varied group of clients. You know everything from sort of foreign governments to you know, development banks to to real banks to to big big vaping businesses to um, you know bread companies. It all comes to Freud's at some point, and they all require uh, a different will require you to get your head round a new world. Um, but at the same time, over the eight years, the world of communications has changed almost um, without, out, out of recognition. I should think 60, 70% of the work that we first did when I first arrived at Freud's, and I had a, only a fairly limited understanding of what went on to be our company, to be honest, um, that's all finished. A lot of the transactional PR that took place, that's all over now. So it used to be, I think, that you, a PR man. He he sat between the sat between the media and and the client. He got on with the client. The client told him what his message was. He took the took the journalist out to lunch, probably a rather boozy lunch, and um, explained what that message was, and persuaded the journalist to put it in their paper or put it on their TV show. And then he went back and congratulated himself on a job well I wish That's it was it. that easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's more fun now, because it's so much more, uh, it requires so much more sophistication. So first of all, the trust that, that, um, that, that the, the public, the, uh, the ordinary people had in the media, it's broken down. So it's no longer the case that the best way to get across your, your message is to persuade it, newspapers to repeat it. Um, and secondly, the public themselves now acquire information, acquire their, their their narrative view of the world in so many more different ways. They, in many cases, they now acquire it directly from brands. So brands can speak directly if they cl- create clever content. They can speak directly to their audience, or they can do it through influencers. Individuals who for well, often using social media have managed to, to acquire the trust of you know, very large numbers of, of, of people in a way that that, that 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 trust was once held by by institutions but as the age of deference came to an end the institutions lost that trust I don't think people have wholly given it over to to individuals so there's a there's a skepticism that goes behind some you know influencer marketing um, and it's why it only works when you find exactly the right influencer promote your brand one who's truly congruent with the brand that but anyway it's all
0: changed so it's been fun riding that change I think you have answered all those three questions there well, that's a relief but that point you made at the end about individuals being congruent with a brand's values it has to be authentic and that seems to be the word that's cropping up more and more It has to be genuine people can see through it if it's not and behind that authenticity has to be a genuine sense of purpose as well. Yes, I think, well,
1: you know, when I came into politics, sort of all those years ago, you know, I remember reading, i just finished reading Milton Friedman at university. And there was the idea of business, the, the, the job of businesses was to make money. Um, um, and then everything else, the market would take care of that. Um, there was, they didn't need a social purpose beyond profit. Um, people have noticed since then, and um, they've had multiple reasons for noticing, that the market doesn't work like that. Um, and the pure pursuit of profit often damages the societies in which the businesses are operating. And so businesses now, unless they, unless they have a, a, a truly category killer product, um, businesses now have to be have to, have to to be able to demonstrate purpose. Purpose for the regulators, purpose for politicians, purpose for the media, purpose for consumers. Um, and that purpose is, can't be CSR. I think CSR is a terrible word. You know, corporate social responsibility basically means I'm going to behave incredibly badly over here on the right, and I'm going to take a little bit of the money I've made behaving badly and spend it on something that might make you feel better about yeah. us over on the left. Greenwashing, <laughs> yes, basically, exactly. in like environmental term. I mean, People see straight through that, all rubbish. You've got to think about how the true touch points of your business on the world and how, how that's a positive thing. And if it's not a positive thing, how could you be better than your competitors? So you don't have to be, obviously some businesses are you know, if you're in healthcare and trying to make people better, that's great. You know, it's very easy to have a sp- purpose if you're a healthcare business. Um, say you're a mining business, that might be much more complicated. But if you say you're the best mining business in the sector, mm-hmm. then, then you're better than everyone else. You've got to have a mine. you're going to run your mine better, the people who work in that mine, Be better than everyone else,
0: uh, better off the employees in other mines. That is a good uh-huh. starting point. To finish off, Ed, where do you think the power ultimately lies now? As you say trust in government-selected bodies has gone down. People can get messages directly from big corporates, directly from brands. Who holds most of the power now? The power lies, as it always has done,
1: with the people. They have the power to choose politicians, chuck them out. They have the power to choose brands. And discard them, and they do so much more quickly than they used to. So you know, if you're a if you're a big company nowadays, you could know, be you could be uh, an incredibly if, in the old days. If you were Warren Buffett, invest in Coca-Cola, it was a pretty good bet. If you got if you, think you had a powerful brand, that was going to be a powerful brand for 20 years. Now you know, if you're Facebook and you get it slightly wrong, you could be gone in five years' time. So it's. The power is genuinely in the hands of the consumer. The same is true in, in politics. And I think it used to be that people's allegiances to political parties were genuinely deep. You know, people talked about tri- tribal politics. You can see that that's all breaking down. Uh, all, the, all the red wall crumbling in the north and voting for Boris Johnson. But not honestly. They haven't given over their allegiance to Boris Johnson. Um, they could just as easily um, vote for someone completely different in the next election. So. So the power is increasingly in the hands of the people. Some of that power is now manipulated through, through um, you know, so social media. So you have organisations that change, like change.org, for example, where you can you can uh, allowing people to coalesce um, entirely independently of in the institutions that needed to mediate that power um, you know, ten, even ten years ago you know, enough people feeling
0: the same way strongly about something can change the world. And final question, where does our role as public relations practitioners, communications experts sit in that in comparison to where it has been previously? What's the the North Star for us and and what we do in trying to, well, earn a living out of all that complication? (laughs) Well, I think the value of
1: reputation has never been higher um, the ease of losing your reputation your brand equity either as an individual or as an institution has never been never been greater um, we have to persuade insofar as it's possible our clients to tell the truth um, We have to persuade them to tell that truth, though, in innovative, exciting, creative ways that surprise people, that wake people up, persuade people to pay attention to the message. Because if you think about what a cacophonous world we now live in, you know, there's so many demands on our time, every, every... you, know, you only have to look at your phone. I've got, you know, probably 70 apps on my phone, all demanding my time and attention in some way. So do all these individuals, all these sort of stories from around the world. So the real issue is how to make your
0: how to make your truth stand out in that complicated world. Definitely a cacophonous time. We're about to head into the cacophony of the West End, as it happens, and we're going past Speakers' Corner. Seems like a good moment, Ed, to thank you very much indeed taking part in The Freudcast. For people listening, you can hear other episodes of The Freudcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify and on SoundCloud. And keep up to date with what's going on at Freud's and with The Freudcast by checking our page on LinkedIn and also our account on Instagram. For now, thanks to you for listening. See you next time.